0: In our study uh, last week, didn't we, we saw that um, yeah, chapter 6 and chapter the beginning of chapter 7 most certainly go together. We, we saw in chapter 6 in those first 11 verses, didn't we, that we've got a new life in baptism. And so we're told, aren't we, in verse 4, we should walk in newness of life. And then we found out from verse 12 to the end of the chapter that we've got a new master. Uh, we're not ruled by sin anymore. Instead, we're serving God and His righteousness. And uh, when we think about what that means, you know, think of the Lord Jesus Christ teaching: "Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and His right ways." That's what we're trying to do, aren't we? We're trying to make that the uh, um, the essence of our lives. Uh, and now, in chapter seven, we get another analogy uh, in the first six verses. And uh, I mentioned last week that it's talking about the fact that we now have a new husband in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I kind of suggest that this analogy is particularly helpful for those Jews who were struggling to leave the law behind. You know, they thought that they were absolutely in covenant relationship with the law and that they, it would be wrong for them to ever let the law go. And so the apostle writes in verse one, no, not brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, so you can see it's particularly helpful for those, those people, how that the law hath dominion over a man so long as he lives. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So a marriage is finished when one partner dies. Now, remember, baptism is a symbolic death. So therefore, in being baptised, an individual is made free from their previous relationship with the law. Verse three. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law, so that she be no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law. By the body of Christ, so in baptism, that you should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So now, in coming up out of the waters of baptism, yes, we know as chapter 6 and verse 4, we were buried with the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, but in coming up out of the waters of baptism, just as he was raised to a new life. So we also can now uh, we're in a relationship with him. He's our new husband and we're going to bring forth fruit unto God. You remember how the, the Lord Jesus Christ taught, I am the vine. This is from John 15 and verse five. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit so if we're going to bring forth the fruit unto God at the end of verse four we've got to be with the Lord Jesus Christ that's our new relationship stay with him and we will bring forth fruit to God so the law was like sin in a way it it ruled over you and it brought forth fruit but the fruit that it brought forth wasn't good fruit it was death look at verse five when we were in the flesh The motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So if you think about it, if you were living under the law, you'd be constantly taking an animal and sacrificing it. You'd see that the fruit is death. That's what the law was doing, wasn't it? The law was teaching you the problem of sin, which in itself, you're supposed to learn the wages of sin is death. So the fruit of the law in the end was death. So being under the law is like having sin as your master in that sense. Both ended up with death. So just as we see that the fruit of the law there at the end of verse five was death. Well, look back in chapter six and verse 21. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you you now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So the law and our old our human nature, they just bring forth death, our old way of life, the old man. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, in our new relationship, we can bring forth a positive fruit. So we've touched on it already there at the end of verse four of chapter seven. But if you go back to chapter six and verse 22, it says, now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So an easy bit of colouring the word fruit chapter 6 verse 21 verse 22 chapter 7 verse 4 and chapter 7 verse 5 and it's very clear the contrast between the fruit of the of the law or of uh, old man it just comes to death or of our relationship with the lord jesus christ when we're serving righteousness god's ways then we see that it brings forth fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life What a difference. Which fruit would we rather bring forth? The Lord Jesus Christ's obedience has led to this opportunity for us. So let's use the opportunity that we have and make positive choices in our lives. Well, I think we just skipped over it. It It's a bit of a hard phrase there in verse five. The motions of sin. Or you might have a different version, the sinful passions, so perhaps a slightly better translation. So so what are the motions of sin or the, the sinful passions? It's just speaking of our nature, which is prone to sin. We're inclined to do our own thing. Now, whilst physically we are the same as before baptism, you know, all of us, when we were baptized, nothing physically changed. We now have a different focus, a new paradigm or outlook, we might say. You see, no longer is our lives now about a letter of just trying to tick boxes and take sacrifices to try to deal with sin. It's not. Sin is dealt with in our life. The Lord Jesus Christ sacrifice once and for all is dealt with the problem of sin. So for us, in our, our new outlook, this new paradigm that we have, it's about the spirit and not the letter it's not a tick box exercise it's about the spirit so he says in verse six now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held so in other words when we were baptized those things have gone that we should serve now in a new way of life a newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter so the newness of life in, that we see in chapter six and at the end of verse four, the newness of life is the newness of spirit. We've got this new way of life now, and it's one where the outlook is a different outlook. And we're going to sort of develop that a bit through our study today. This different outlook that we've now got. Now, remember that each of these three parables were answering the question that was posed at the beginning of chapter 6. Remember that uh, in chapter 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer, of course not. You know, and these three parables are there to answer that question. Look, of course we're not going to continue in sin that grace may abound. We chose to, to leave the old man in the grave. That's why we got baptised. We're no longer looking to serve king's sin. Our service is to God. We're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, that's what we're talking about, isn't it, when we're talking about being servants of righteousness. In other words, we're serving God's right ways. That's what we're trying to make the, the priority in our lives. And what a wonderful blessing it is that the Lord God has provided a new husband for us, chapter seven, a help that's meet for each of us in our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's just ask the question, what has fundamentally changed from living under the law to living under grace? I'm now walking in this newness of life, which is clearly a newness of spirit. And in this new way of life, in this new way of thinking, I have responsibility now to to hear, to, to listen to God. Remember, that's what the servant does. The servant obeys, which begins with the open ear. Shamar in the Hebrew, and the Greek, I've forgotten the word. But there, that's the key, isn't it? The open ear, that's what the servant does to obey. So yes, we listen to the scriptures and we then use our knowledge of God's word to make decisions, which I believe from scripture to be right. I'm not relying on a law for every situation. of, And, and of course, there never was a law for every situation and never could be. The law can't legislate for every eventuality because c- no two situations are quite the same. And that's why the Jewish elders kept adding their traditions to the law. But in the end, they omitted the weighty matters of the law: judgment, mercy, and faith. That's that's Matthew 23, verse 23, isn't it? That, that you know that's what they took out. But for us now, following Christ, it's a far higher calling. God wants us to exercise our free will to make choices and in our baptisms we showed, didn't we that we agree with God's right ways and so therefore the choices that we're making in life are grounded on his right ways on those values well of course the frustration that we still have this side of the kingdom is that because we're still mortal we still often make mistakes And that's what this chapter is going to come on to. But before we get there, the thing that is picked up from verse 7 down to verse 13, perhaps a bit longer, is this. If the law has come to an end, the question that arises is, well, was the law the problem? Was it a problem? Well, verse 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. The law, the apostle is going to show, served its purpose to highlight the problem of sin. That's what it was there for. The law was never there that if we did it, we would then somehow uh, save ourselves. We were never going to be able to do it. The whole point of the law is it showed how problematic sin was. In fact, if you look at verse 13, it says that sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me, that that which is good, that sin by the commandment, by the law, might become exceeding sinful. So sin was shown how big a problem it was. Sin was shown to be exceeding sinful by the law. So in other words, it showed how big a problem sin is. The law did its job. So let's read from verse seven. And I'm going to sort of, because this bit of scripture is known to be sort of quite challenging to sort of to follow through. What I'm going to try to do is paraphrase as we go. So verse seven. So if you are following in your Bible, I'll try and go at a reasonable pace. Um But um, yeah, maybe have a, a, a notebook ready or something to sort of take some notes. We try to explain as we go along. So verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So was the law imperfect? Certainly not, by no means. The law did its job it highlighted ways in which we sin for example coveting the law made me realize that coveting after something is wrong so before the law you might well have sort of coveted it and not appreciated that what you were doing was wrong we know that it's wrong because of the law so verse 8 but sin is taking occasion by the commandment, by the law, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. So living under the law, he's saying, I was suddenly aware how much I was coveting in all sorts of ways, all manner of concupiscence. I I realized, wow, I'm constantly coveting because of the law. So, without the law, I didn't realize I was doing anything wrong. Without the law, sin was dead. Verse 9 For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, when the law came, sin revived and I died. So, before the law, I lived my life carefree. I was alive without the law once. But under the law, I kept being aware of sin and its consequence, death. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Sin revived, I kept being aware of sin and I died. Its consequence is death. And the commandment, verse 10, the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. So let's think about this. We can put a cross-reference here, I think. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 1, Moses says this. Now, therefore, hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments that I which I teach you, for to do them that ye may live. So the apostle says, and the commandment which was ordained to life. So the law was given for us to live, but I found to be unto death. So in other words, yes, the law was given. So Moses says, look, you've got to do this and live in them. But living under the law, he realized what a sinner he was. And therefore, he found that it was condemning him to death. I found it to be unto death. Verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Well, clearly here we've got an echo to Eve and Eden, haven't we? You know, and we're not surprised because although Eve and Eden wasn't living under the law that is in the law of Moses, she, of course, was under a law in that sense that they've been given the commandment. um, And as we know, Eve was deceived by the serpent. So so the Lord deceived. So he's saying there, look, I, I thought I could live forever, but actually it's condemned me to death. So for sin, taking occasion by the commandment. Okay, so in other words, the the law was shown through sin or sin was shown, sorry, through the law uh, and by it, it slew me. So it slew me because I kind of came to realise that actually I'm I'm a sinner. I'm going to die. Verse 12, wherefore? Okay, so we're almost getting to the conclusion of this little section here. Wherefore? The law is holy, the commandment, holy and just and good. So it's just complete repetition is it? try and make sure that you've utterly got the point that the law is not the problem. The law is good. So in a sense, back to verse seven, aren't we? Is the law sin? By no means. The law is not the problem. The law is good. The commandment is holy, just, good. You know, there's no issue at all with the law the law did its job verse 13 was then that which is good made death unto me by no means but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good the law that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful so it's not the law's fault that i'm condemned to death of course not So, beginning of verse 13, was then that which is good, in other words, the law, made death unto me? So, he's asking the question, is it the law's fault that I'm condemned to death? God forbid. Obviously, we know that in the Greek, there's not such a phrase as God forbid. Of course not. But, carrying on in verse 13, sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, the law. So, sin was being shown through the law. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So let's just paraphrase in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, namely the law, to show how big the problem of sin is. So we've got to uh, a little kind of end of a section there, haven't we, to sort of see from verse 7 to verse 13. It couldn't be clearer, could it, that the, the law was there to show the promise of sin. It completely did its job. Uh, it, everything that the law was there to do, it did. It showed how exceedingly sinful sin is. Now, what's interesting is that the verbs up to verse 13, the doing words up to verse 13, have all been in the past tense, That makes sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, you think of him when he was living under the law, it would have been before he was baptised, before he was writing this letter. But from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, the verbs are all in the present tense. How interesting, right? So you've got the verbs in the past tense up to verse 13, from verse 14 onwards in the present tense. And the point is surely this, that living under the law in the past had made the apostle realize just how deep-rooted sin was. But what we're going to see now is that even as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is still struggling with sin. There is this constant battle going on. And I am sure that for everybody listening, it's the same for all of us. So let's pick up now again in verse 14 and see if we can um, yeah keep going and yeah hold on see if we can kind of get through these verses together um, hopefully it's making sense as i'm doing my utmost to explain so verse 14 you're following and then i'll try and give the paraphrase again we know that the law is spiritual but i am carnal sold under sin so that's super easy the law isn't the problem I am. I think sold unto sin brings us back to the to the servant metaphor of chapter six. He could see that even now sin had a hold on him. Uh, and we all feel the same, don't we? Because verse 15, isn't this right for all of us? That which I do, I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, and what I hate, that do I. So he's saying, isn't he, the things I do, I don't understand. When he's saying I allow not, that's the idea of, I don't understand. I can't get my head around it because the things that I want to do, I don't. And the things I hate or I hate the things that I do. You know, so he, he's just it's just the problem that all of us have, isn't it? It's all a bit of a tongue twister, but actually, it's just such a good point, isn't it? And, and actually, the, the, the tongue twister almost just adds to the fact that, look, we've just got this wrangling going on in us that we are trying to do the right thing, but we keep messing up. So he says in verse 16, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. And what I think he's saying there is, look, if I'm making these mistakes, I'm demonstrating and agreeing that the law is needed. It was good. But then, and this is perhaps the most challenging of the verses here. He says in verse 17, now it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So he's got this frustration, hasn't he, of saying, you know, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, those are the things that I do do. And he says, look, so it's not no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. We have to sort of make sure that we're taking this in context, aren't we? This isn't him rejecting any responsibility for sin. Bearing in mind that having done our study together, we've seen, haven't we, that the first few chapters of Romans have all been about accepting we're sinners so he, he's certainly not about to contradict that, is he, and say that actually, well, you know, if we when you sin, you know, there's no issue. Okay, it's not your fault anymore. It, it's simply in verse seventeen, we might say a point of frustration. The, the apostle could see that his new life was about God and His righteousness. That's what he wanted more than anything else. But he also can see it's so clear to him as it is clear to all of us that we still sin even though we don't want to we constantly fail in suppressing sin it's not the new man the disciple of christ that you know the one that's trying to serve God right ways it's our old man we're still mortal and so he says in verse 18 for i know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing R- remember the words of the lord jesus There is none good but one, that is God. That's from Matthew 19 in verse 17. Or what about these words of the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the Philippians? Philippians 3 in verse 21. He talks about how he's looking forward to Jesus coming back. And he says, he will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Or or just actually at the end of this chapter in chapter seven, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Okay, so can you see that all of those are about the fact that actually we kind of get that we are still mortal. In me dwelleth no good thing. Okay, we're bound by mortality. That means we're imperfect. There's nothing good about us. Even the Lord Jesus Christ said, there's none good but one, that is God. While we have this nature, Okay, nothing is good about us. Every part of us is mortal, weak, dying. And we all feel frustrated that we don't manage to live up to the standard that we're trying to follow after. And so he says, then, halfway through verse 18, for to will is present with me, there's a desire, but how to perform that which is good? I can't, i find not, I can't do it. And again, you remember the Lord Jesus speaking of the disciples in the garden before his crucifixion. He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. To will is present, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm thinking I should give you a cross reference for that, shouldn't I? It's It's a helpful one. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So it's going to be Matthew 26. uh, Matthew 26. And uh, I'm struggling to spot it. It's classic stuff, isn't it? Uh, Oh, there we go. Matthew 26 and verse 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so then he says in verse 19, And at first it just seems like an absolute repeat, and I guess it is in a way, it's just uh, um, adding to it. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Uh, And this then verse 20 that goes with it, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And hopefully you can sort of see this uh, and the wonderful colouring that's gone on here as well. So you can see verse 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Right. But just see how easy this sort of pattern is to see. We know that the law is spiritual. I consent that the law is good. Yeah. Happy with that. But I am carnal, sold under sin, for I know there's in me that is in my flesh, I'm carnal, do I know no good thing? So we can see certainly a bit of an echo there. For that which I do, you know, to will is present with me, I allow not, remember, I allow not, I, I, I can't seem to get my head around it. How to perform that which is good, I find not, you know, I can't get my head around how to do it. For what I would, that do I not. Verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not. But what I hate, that do I. But the evil that I would not, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, now if I do that I would not. And here's the bit that's different. That bit there comes in and we don't see it in the second section. Now, then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So it seems that the first part of it is almost like that first bit of uh, chapter 7 that we got up to from verse 7 down to verse 13, almost kind of backing up the fact that actually, yes, the law does a good job and it shows me how exceedingly sinful sin is. It makes me realise that actually in me dwelleth no good thing. But then the second section is not sort of focusing on the law as in the law of Moses anymore, but it's actually just making me realise that, yes, just in me dwells no good thing, quite apart from the law almost, leaving the law behind, I still see that actually in me dwells no good thing. I I still have got the challenge of mortality. So so I I think that we can see that sort of uh, um, through just looking at that structure and breaking that up, we're able to hopefully see that idea coming through. So I've uh, come off my, my sharing But hopefully we're going to get the the idea there that the first section deals with uh, um, the purpose of the law to reveal sin. And the second addresses our innate inability to do good. So the problem is not with the law of God, but with human nature. Well, you'll be pleased to know that eventually we're going to get on to hear the solution. But verse 21 is more of a summary So let's read that now. Verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So I think here you you could basically say we've got a new paragraph and it's summarizing verses 15 to 20. And it's not a reference to any actual law here. Okay, certainly not a reference to the law of Moses. When he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. But more, I I would say that what he's saying is I can see a rule, something constant in me, we might be able to put it. okay? so that when despite my effort to do good, I'm constantly doing wrong. I think that's what he's saying here. So I find then a law. I find this this rule almost in me, something that's just constant in me, that whatever effort I make to do good, I still keep doing wrong. Verse twenty two. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So even though I delight in God's ways, my heart is in the right place after the inward man. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 23 is saying there, isn't he? So he's saying, look, even though I delight in God's ways, verse 22, even though my heart's in the right place, I'm finding, verse 23, it's a constant battle. This law in my members, I'm clear in my mind that I want to serve God, but I feel trapped by my sin prone nature. So verse 24, it's so frustrating, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, from mortality? Who can release me from this captivity, from mortality? And here's the solution. Here's the answer to it all. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is deliverance. So then, in summary, my mind is to serve God. However, while I'm mortal, I'm going to keep having this battle with my sin-prone nature. I'm going to keep this battle going. With the mind I myself served the Lord of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is this battle alive. Now, brothers and sisters, all of us have that battle alive. The bit of comfort I would say is this. If the battle isn't there, there's a problem. The battle is what's telling us that we're alive, that we're trying to serve God's ways. We're trying to make that our priority. And you know, while the battle is alive, there's deliverance. And when God is on our side, as we'll see next week, there's every reason to be confident to make sure we keep the battle alive. Now, let me show you something which I think is really helpful. and I'm sure it will help us if we'll take it on board. Like us, the struggle is well and truly alive that the weakness of the flesh is letting the apostle pull down time and again and he's frustrated by it but to me this is really really helpful verse 22 i delight in the law of god after the inward man now honestly to me this is such a wonderful help It shows an association here with the spirit of Christ. Remember, that's the newness of mind that we've got, the newness of spirit, the newness of life that we have is about our association with the Lord Jesus Christ. And saying this, I delight in the law of God, gives absolute confidence that when that's your spirit, to delight in the law of God, you've got the association with the spirit of Christ. Why? Why can we say that? Well... Come with me. Let's hold here and come back to Psalm 40, which is most definitely in my mind what is being cited here. I delight in the law of God. So Psalm 40. It's a psalm of David. Psalm 40 and verse six. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire or thou hast no delight in mine ear has thou opened. Remember, that's the key to open, open our ear. OK, that's what the servant's got to do, hasn't it? To obey. Burnt offering and sin offering is thou not required. And just make sure you've got it in your margin. This is cited in Hebrews 10 verses five to seven about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus. This is him speaking. Verse seven. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Let's make sure we've got it. Romans 7, verse 22. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. It's in my heart. Well, this is surely such a huge help. If we delight in God's ways, which comes from an open ear to the word of God on a daily basis for the Lord Jesus Christ, we know, don't we? Isaiah 50, it was morning by morning that he opened mine ear. To hear is to learn. It's that mindset that helps you to focus on the spirit and not the flesh. This side of the kingdom, like the apostle, yes, we're still frustrated by our mortality. The battle is there, but we can have confidence that in the Lord God, there is a solution. So chapter 7, verse 25, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ there is deliverance who shall deliver me i thank god to our lord jesus christ so then with the mind i serve the law of god but with the flesh throw us in there is therefore now chapter 8 verse 1 no condemnation to them that are in christ jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit so this Lovely Psalm, Psalm 40, has helped us to see that the apostle has clearly got the spirit of Christ. That's the spirit that we're trying to cultivate. If we delight in God's ways, then we're on the right path. Well, I want to just see that actually, this idea of looking to the example of david Psalm here, Psalm 40 is a Psalm of David. Is something that is surely a kind of major theme in Romans and we've got um maybe 15 or so minutes till the end of our class so let's try to make sure we can start, start picking this up and um yeah having your brains on it will be great so hopefully you can add to the Padlet um I know that uh, brother Joe uh, uh, Mullen has kindly uh, put some connections together about David on the power on on the spreadsheet, sorry. So if you looked at the sp- click the spreadsheet at the beginning of the Padlet, uh, you'd be able to see one of the tabs along the bottom, some some links to David. But right now you're on this, okay? So you can't look at it just yet. So have a look at this. Then Romans chapter one, first of all. So we're going to now we're looking together now at the theme of David in Romans, and we're going to see what we can learn from this. Romans 1, um, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So our attention is drawn, isn't it, here, to the Lord Jesus Christ's humanity. He was made like, this, he's made the seed of David, according to the flesh. So so why are we being directed to think of the Lord Jesus as the seed of David, not as the kingly descendant, but according to the flesh? Normally, if you think of the seed of David, don't you think of he's going to reign on the throne of his father, David? He's going to be the king. But here he's saying he's the seed of David according to the flesh. Why doesn't he just say the seed of Adam to do that? Or if it was because he was faithful, the seed of Abraham. Well, surely it's to point out that the Lord Jesus had to share our nature, hence the point according to the flesh. But it also shows that here was God's promised solution, the one through whom the promises would be fulfilled. This is the seed of David. And the, the flesh proves it, because actually he was the fleshy descendant of David too. So right from the beginning of this letter, our minds are being caused, aren't they, to think about David and it might be that the apostle is hinting to the ecclesia in Rome, think of yourselves as being like David, because we notice that in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God. Now remember, beloved is the meaning of David's name. And interestingly, the Greek word agapatos, you know, translated beloved, is used in Romans more than any other book. You can see that again on the spreadsheet. Well, I want us to now see that if we, uh, let's hold here, let's hold Romans chapter 1 and come with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, because here in 2 Samuel 11, we have the really sad record of David's sin with Bathsheba and then subsequently with Uriah as well. And we're not going to dwell on the sin, that, oh, the sins that happen there, like awful as they are. In chapter 12, what we see is Nathan, the prophet, being sent by God to make David realize that he needs to confess his sin. So in 2 Samuel 12, you remember that Nathan comes, just I would scan through the first few verses of 2 Samuel 12, and he tells a parable to David, doesn't he, about a rich man and a poor man, and how the rich man took the poor man's only sheep and uh, used it to, to uh, serve up dinner to a, a passerby. And David was furious at this uh, like the idea that this rich man would do that to the poor man. Uh, and David said, didn't he, in verse five, uh, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as Yahweh liveth, a man that's done this thing shall surely die. Okay, so David's furious that that would happen. And here's the point that we're going to make here that if you just hold to Psalm 12, and you need to hold it, because we're going to look at some other things there. Nathan helped David, didn't he, see that actually you, David, have got to see the problem of sin. And David, when he was shown sin around him, as it were, was saying, yeah, whoever's done this is worthy to die. And that can be how we get to when we read Romans 1, can't it? We look at Romans 1, we say, yeah, truly, all the things in Romans 1, they're awful. The people that do that type of thing, they are worthy to die. And that's how chapter Romans 1 finishes, doesn't it? Romans 1, verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. And this is what we're like. But what Nathan says to David then in 2 Samuel 12, keep reading now, 2 Samuel 12 and verse seven is you are the man. And look how Romans two begins. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Or the syntax in the Greek makes it even more clear. It says, thou therefore are inexcusable, thou art a man. So the brethren and sisters in Rome, Like us today, may look at the world as we say in Romans chapter one and pass judgment upon them, see them as worthy of death. But the point of this letter, the point of looking at David, is that we all have to grasp the problem of sin in our lives. Thou art inexcusable. I am inexcusable. And so what it says then at the end of chapter one is: yes, we get pleasure from those who do wrong. We consent to it. And we might try and say, Well, we don't do that, but. The fact is we all do at times don't we we can dissent to such behavior by by watching it as if it's the norm through watching the very things that we know god hates the power of these words can hit home you are inexcusable and and surely the spirit is still drawing on the example of david um we can pick out a few sort of connections and look, look through the uh spreadsheet and you'll see some of these but Some obvious ones let's pick out. In chapter 2 of Romans and verse 21, thou that preachest a man should not steal. Dost thou steal? Of course he did. He stole another man's wife. Verse 22, thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery. Dost thou commit adultery? Of course he did. That's exactly what he's doing. Well, look at this now, verse 24. For the name of God, now remember in Romans 2, he's talking to the Jews and saying, because of your behavior, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you have a look at this Romans 12 sorry 2 Samuel 12 2 Samuel chapter 12 and look what Nathan says to David in verse 14 howbeit by this cause, because of what you the way you're behaving you've given great occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme it's clear isn't it what a connection we see there uh, Romans 2 verse 24 back to 2 Samuel 12 and verse 14 well <laughs> I think that we can still keep going with these connections because what we then read about in Romans 2 and verse 28 is this he is not a Jew which is one outwardly neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew which is one inwardly and you might be able to think about in your, I've got it in my margin 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 which is where Samuel is told by the Lord God as he's going to anoint David The Lord looks not on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so here he's a Jew, which is not one, which is not to do with the outward, but it's the inward. It's the heart, as it says in verse twenty-nine, in the spirit and not in the letter. That's what God is interested in. So we see another connection there, back to one Samuel. What did I say? Sixteen and verse seven. But I think the connections keep going because. David was given a psalm by the Lord God, which we now see in Psalm 51, which is his confession of sin. So let's have a look at Psalm 51. And obviously the reason I say it's given by God is because it's, uh, you know, these things are prophetical as well. So they are clearly not just simply the words of David. That'd be far too simple to think of it like that. So Psalm 51 and... We notice that the title of the psalm says a psalm of David when Nathan, the prophet, had come unto him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So Psalm 51, that's the title of the psalm. And we see that in this psalm, he confesses the sin and he prays that God will uh, help him. He says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Um, So we think that's interesting, isn't it? So when we see in Romans 2 and verse 29, he is a Jew, which is one inwardly that circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. Uh, So there, renew, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. And now, if you're in Psalm 51, have a look at verse 4 and see where your margin says the second half of verse 4 is cited. How interesting is this? My margin says it clearly. It's cited in Romans three and verse four. Surely that's worth circling. So here we go. We go back to Romans three and we see. Yeah, of course, it's true there in verse four that Psalm 51, this psalm that is given David is confessing his sin before God is now being cited in Romans three. Like, How amazing! David has been set up as an example to help us to see. We've got to confess our sin. We're all sinners. That's so what the argument in Romans is showing, isn't it? We're all sinners. But we've got to confess our sins to God. And of course, David realised, in we see it in Psalm 51, that no sacrifice of the law could help. The law couldn't do it. The law showed how exceedingly sinful sin is. The law condemned him to death. There was nothing that he could do then, except humble himself and put his faith in God's mercy. And that's where Romans is getting us, isn't it? To help us to see that we cannot save ourselves. We need to put our faith in the grace and the mercy of God. So, So let's keep going in Romans now, because what I think is interesting is that if we were carrying on in Romans chapter three, do you remember how that from verse 10 to verse 18, there are a number of citations. um, And I don't know if you went through and kind of circled them or colored the the citations in your margin. Uh, I've been through them. And what I found is that there are uh, six or seven citations and they're nearly all Psalms of David. It's just so interesting, isn't it? These Psalms of David coming through and six of them all psalms of david except there is one which is from isaiah 59 at the very end uh so verse 15 says isaiah 59 but actually if you look closely it also says it's proverbs 1 and verse 16 how interesting now proverbs 1 and verse 16 are david's words to solomon and I would say those words were picked up by Isaiah and Isaiah 59 as he then develops them some more. So even those words we could actually bring back to David. It's just interesting, isn't it? We see that. And each passage, if you went back and, and we did at the time, mentions the heart or the inward parts. So, so the verses that were showing weren't they that we're deeply affected by the problem of sin. You know, we are, in being mortal, yet we've got this grim problem and and really it's the heart of the problem, there's that lovely phrase, the heart of the problem, the the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem, it's a lovely phrase that I can't get my head around. So in Romans then, having come to grasp the the kind of universal problem of sin, the fact we're entrenched in the problem, each of us faces up to the fact that we can never be justified by any works that works of the law. We've all sinned, and we've come short of the glory of God. And it's only with that mindset, and David was brought to that same point on his knees, as it were, that we grasp more fully that we can only be saved by God's grace. There's no other way. You know, we, we'll never save ourselves. And that's what David came to recognize, that no law could save him. He had to rely on the grace of God. Now, for those who will turn to God, they'll find that his grace is sufficient. There is forgiveness with God. And what a blessing that is for each of us. And, of course, we we realise when we keep reading in Romans 3 that that forgiveness, that grace has been shown through the giving of God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But even a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ came onto this earth, David came to understand these key principles. Uh, And having confessed his sin in Psalm 51, that's what God wants us to do, to confess. And we recognize that in confessing sin, we remember that we are declaring that God is right. That's why we say, sorry, we say, yeah, this is wrong. Therefore, you are right. We declare the righteousness of God in that sense. And David got to that point. And it's then that God would say, absolutely willing to forgive. And, you know, the next psalm after Psalm 51, don't tell me Psalm 52, it's not. It's Psalm 32. Come to Psalm 32. And I promise you, I'm not just telling you this because it happens to fit with this study. Far from it. Psalm 51 know the confession of david's sin it says it there in the title of the psalm and then almost any commentary would say and the next would be psalm 32 where david now talks about the fact that the blessing of having his sin forgiven so psalm 51 the confession psalm 32 grateful for the blessing of having sin forgiven and so we see there in psalm 32 and verse 1 blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. And I want you to just follow your margin from verse 1 and see where that is cited. And if you've not seen this before, it's going to send shivers down your spine, surely. It's incredible. Romans 4, verses 5 to 8. So let's go back to Romans chapter 4. And we're just, all we're doing is following through the argument, aren't we, in Romans, and we're seeing that David is here in the background as this example for the ecclesian Rome, particularly for this Judaistic element who was struggling to let go of the law. And they're being shown, look to the example of David, look to the example of Abraham. And so in Romans chapter 4, and there in verse 6, even as David describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness, without works saying blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven psalm 32 verse 1 and 2 and whose sins are covered blessed is the man to whom the lord will not impute sin david had tried to hide his sin but now had come to grasp the best covering was god's provision forgiveness based on acknowledging sin and trusting god blessed is the man that trusteth in him What a relief it must have been to David to grasp the the wonderful blessing of the forgiveness of sins, which is, of course, the gospel. And, you know, Psalm 51, after confessing his sin, David asked God to renew a right spirit within me. And that is surely what Romans 7 is all about. We're going to serve Romans 7 verse 6 in newness of spirit, renew A right spirit within me, Psalm 51. We're now serving in newness of spirit. In the psalm, David prays, Deliver me. The apostles echoes it at the end of Romans 7. Who shall deliver me? Romans 7, verse 24. But of course, David's psalm is prophetic. In the end, it's looking forward to the one, the Lord Jesus Christ. would be able to provide the deliverance and Romans 7 is telling us all about him the seed of David and so David's faith in his seed the Lord Jesus Christ will mean with certainty that although he's now dead and in the grave he is only sleeping and when the Lord Jesus Christ comes he'll be raised and he'll be brought into the kingdom and he'll see his son reigning in righteousness and we will see with absolute surety next week if the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't come before that for those who the battle is alive for those who are trying to serve in this newness of spirit got the responsibility of trying to choose God's ways in their lives now there's so much on our side the Lord God will get us to the kingdom